It's Friday, October 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A recent top-secret cable was sent to CIA stations across the world saying that dozens of informants used as spies for the U.S. have been captured, killed, or compromised. According to one expert, because of technology, the old way of spying has become obsolete. Biometric scans, facial recognition, and even cell phones are revealing key facts about movements, patterns, and life associations. Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, scientists are constantly working on averting the next pandemic, and one avenue that is being pursued is a so-called pan-coronavirus vaccine. This would be a shot that could block many related viruses all in one. Although still years away, they are trying to develop a vaccine that can protect you from everything from COVID variants to the common cold. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the effort to make a universal vaccine. Finally, work burnout has been an issue for some time, but the pandemic has shown many people just how much their work has taken over their lives. With constant meetings and new pressures, people are struggling to take control. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why maybe you should care a little less to get your life back. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have a country like China, which has a camera on every street corner in Beijing, and they're running, they're scanning faces 24 hours a day and running them through facial recognition databases. You know, how could you possibly operate an alias? Joining us now is Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Great to be with you, Oscar. Thanks. There was a recent cable sent out from the CIA to all of the CIA stations around the world talking about a, a troubling number of uh, informants that had been captured, killed, or compromised, just warning them to uh, step up the security on informants that they were gathering and, and you know just being a little more careful. We've also seen that there's a, a former CIA officer, CIA officer who was studying a lot of this for the agency is saying that the old way of spying may have become obsolete all due to technology. So it's an interesting look at kind of how our, our spy agency, our counterintelligence agencies operate. Ken, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? So this top secret cable to the workforce wasn't in response, as I understand it, to any particular incident, was, but was the counterintelligence folks at the CIA, the folks that are in charge of like security and protecting secrets, wanted to make sure that everybody knew that, hey, there have been a series of these penetrations CIA informants have been caught. Some of some were arrested. Some were executed. You know, this has been going on as long as the CIA has been spying. But it seems like it's getting worse. And one of the reasons is that technology is making it harder than ever before to do human espionage. And the reasons are obvious, right? I mean, the model of the CIA for decades has been to send CIA officers mostly to live in embassies overseas and to pose undercover as State Department diplomats, right? And to have a fake job during the day, a cover job, and then go out at night and to cocktail parties or whatever and try to recruit foreigners to spy for the United States. And they often used fake names to do that. Well, all of that stuff is rendered almost impossible now in the modern world. Just think of one example. If you've grown up in the age of social media, there are hundreds or thousands of pictures of you online in your true name that you can't get rid of, no matter how, many, how hard you try. So you have a country like China, which has a camera on every street corner in Beijing, and they're running, they're scanning faces 24 hours a day and running them through facial recognition databases. You know, how could you possibly operate an alias? You can't. 
But that's just a minor part of it. I mean, you know, alias is not essential, but it's also really hard for them to hide their associations with the people that they are recruiting to spy. And so, and you know, the main culprit here obviously is the cell phone. Everybody's cell phone is a tracking device. It's really hard with all these digital devices, not just phones, but the telematics in our cars. It's going to get worse with the Internet of Things. It's really hard for us to hide what they call our pattern of life and our associations. And the guy I talked to that you mentioned, the former CIA officer, Dwayne Norman, part of his job in his 27-year career was studying this problem. And he has concluded that human espionage, as we know it, is done. It's got to be fundamentally rethought. Now, I have to say, most people at the agency and people I've talked to do not agree with that. They think that this is a problem that is surmountable, but he thinks they're kidding themselves. I mean, right. essentially, they think, oh, we can hack into all these databases. And they can do that a lot of the time. But his point is the adversary is always going to find a way. There's always going to be something you didn't think of. And this model that we've had for decades just for the CIA just cannot work in the future going forward. Dwayne Norman, uh, any suggestions on what to do going forward? Because you know, we have to, if we have to rethink how we're doing it, uh, you, know, what, you know, he's been studying this. Any suggestions from him? So he is the first to admit that he does not have the perfect answer to this. What he does say, though, is that he thinks that some part of the answer has to be more of a what he calls a public-private partnership, which really means the CIA convincing American companies to spy for the United States. That has been going on as long as there has been a CIA. But the idea of doing it in an organized fashion where it's actually a program and people have to account for it, obviously going to be deeply controversial, you know, especially in the post-Snowden era where a lot of people who work for big tech companies are, are, you know, don't want to cooperate with the U.S. intelligence community. But it's absolutely true that some form of that is, it's already underway. I mean, because like right now, if you're in certain jobs at the CIA, you can't have any association with the agency. You can never set foot in the headquarters at Langley with a phone because that's trackable. So there are people who are embedded in companies right now who only have very few people know they're associated with the CIA, maybe one or two people at the company even. And sometimes they'll cycle back to their regular corporate job. And they, they work the corporate job the whole time. They're just also working as a spy. And I think that's the model that we're going to yeah. see increasingly in the future. The U.S. intelligence is, is a little rusty in a sense because we've been focusing so much on terrorism and those related things and getting back to this other regular spycraft is that's why we have to rethink it because we've been on that terrorism front so much. I think that's almost two different conversations. Though. There is certainly that is the, the idea that the CIA has its muscles have atrophied in terms of classic espionage. But the thing is, the classic espionage is transformed. I mean, the, the way they were doing it even 10 years ago does not work anymore. So it's got to be completely rethought. But in terms of like sloppy trade cuts, I mean, the CIA first realized they had a crisis back in 2006 when a group of CIA officers flew over to Italy to kidnap an Italian cleric who was a terror suspect. And an Italian prosecutor using cell phone records and geolocation records figured out who all these people were and tracked their movements to hotels. And some of them were very sloppy. Some of them used their own names. And at the end of the day, he had an airtight case. He indicted 23 Americans. Some of these people still can't travel today. He exposed their whole operation because of cell phone records. And so that was like a wake-up call for the CIA. Hey, you guys have a problem here. And they started changing the trade cut. But, you know, that was 15 years ago. Imagine what the Chinese services can do now to use big data to unmask uh, CIA officers and their recruits. Ken Delanian, national security correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. Great to be with you. 
But everybody's worried about what if another variant comes along that the vaccines we have now doesn't work against, and we don't want to be back to square one. Right. So the idea is if you can get a vaccine that would neutralize, as they say, any variant, then there's less to worry about. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. It's nice to be here. Thanks. So we're obviously still going through the COVID pandemic right now, uh, trying to get as many people as we can vaccinated. But there's a lot of forward thinking. We're looking toward, you know, what could be happening next. And one of the things that scientists are working on is uh, kind of this uh, idea of a universal or pan-coronavirus vaccine, a single vaccine that could work for many different types of coronaviruses. As we know, you know, we've had a a learning course over the course of uh, this pandemic. These coronaviruses cause anything from the common cold. We've seen SARS, we've seen MERS, you know, a lot of different things. So scientists are working for a big catch-all type of vaccine. So Betsy, help us walk through some of it. What are we learning? Yeah, I mean, the idea that researchers in emerging infectious diseases are working toward are vaccines that basically protect you against a whole family of viruses or a group of viruses that are problematic. And in this case, it would be coronaviruses. And within that, the SARS-like viruses, they call them. There's a technical term for it, but we'll leave it at that. And it's basically the virus that is affecting us now, (laughs) causing the pandemic, but also caused SARS in 2003. And it looks like there are several that can infect humans. So the idea is you create one vaccine that targets all of those viruses at once. And then if another one comes along, it's very likely that the vaccine would protect it against it or protect against it enough to stop an outbreak from becoming bigger. And we're seeing this being worked on, uh, you know, through through the U.S. Army, the, the branches of the of Walter Reed uh, of Walter Reed uh, Medical Center, too. You know, the, you know, it's there's a lot of effort. There's other groups that are also working on this. There, there's a lot of effort into it. So I talked to several researchers and one was at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research who said, you know, these types of vaccines, these kind of targeting, you know, a universal vaccine is sort of the way out of this pandemic and also sort of this cycle of epidemics. I mean, researchers in this field have been battling one epidemic after another over the past decade or two. So they're developing one and others are developing vaccine that would target both the SARS-like viruses, as I said. So both the, the variants of the current virus and maybe some beyond it. One of the issues is we have a very effective vaccines right now, but everybody's worried about what if another variant comes along that the vaccines we have now doesn't work against, and we don't want to be back to square one. So the idea is if you can get a vaccine that would neutralize, as they say, any variant, then there's less to worry about. You know, and in this case of a universal type vaccine, this is going to be something that's going to take a longer time. You know, it's not going to be like the COVID vaccine, which, you know, was done all on the up and up, but it, you know, it did happen pretty fast. This is going to be a lot slower pace because they need to kind of catch all the other viruses associated with it. And so how do they actually do that? Because, you know, I'm imagining, you know, just an extra large syringe, you know, a bunch of extra stuff that they're packing into one shot, but they really kind of start off with uh, with one and start layering things on, on top of the other, looking for those similarities in those viruses so they can kind of hope to avoid those. One thing you do is you look in the blood of people who've been infected for antibodies 
they're called broadly neutralizing antibodies. So, but, but basically antibodies that look like they would fight off several different types of coronaviruses. And then you use those to sort of reverse engineer and figure out what would a vaccine have to look like. Now, at Walter Reed, what they are doing is they, they created, designed what's called a nanoparticle, a very small particle, looks like a, a small soccer ball, and they stick copies of spike proteins all over it. And the idea is that becomes part of a vaccine, and when it's injected into you, it will help your body develop antibodies against several viruses. The idea is you put you put spike proteins for different coronaviruses on there, or what you look for on you know a variety of related viruses are pieces of the spike protein that are similar across the viruses, so that and you can target that. Are these going to be mRNA-type vaccines like Moderna and Pfizer, or are they looking at uh, different ways to make this, uh, y- this universal one? So there are different technologies being used. Um, at the University of North Carolina, researchers did a study using the mRNA technology. Others are using other technologies. And so you could end up with several different types. Right now, they're at the stage of testing these you know, vaccine candidates in animals and testing them for a few, basically the SARS-like viruses, right, to see if, if they'll work against that. If they do, then the next step would be to broaden even further and try to protect against an even broader group of coronaviruses that would include Middle East respiratory syndrome. So first, they're trying to get the structure of the vaccine right. And once they do that, then they can start putting in pieces of other viruses and see if they can kind of generate that broad protection that you would need in order to be protected against the family of viruses. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you as always for having me. And he had a heart attack. And like one of his first thoughts was like, you know, it was an expletive. I don't know if I can say it on your radio program. I couldn't say it in the Wall Street Journal. But right. he was like, I got to meet with my manager tomorrow. Like this isn't convenient. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about something, you know, we've been hearing for a long time. Obviously, we heard it a, a lot about it throughout the pandemic. Burnout. You know, there's been a lot of burnout for people who were working a lot of extra time during the pandemic, despite what was going on. And now that we're getting back to work and a lot of people are going back to offices, that burnout feel is still kind of there. And, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, more meetings. People are still having to do Zoom meetings, even though they're back in the office. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all sorts of stuff is going on. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people are trying to get that perspective, uh, make their work life better. And it's tough. So you wrote an article kind of exploring this. And one of the things, you know, the headline says it catches your eye. Maybe you should care less about your job. Now, I know you're not meeting that in the most literal of sense, but gaining that perspective, taking back the control is very important. Yeah, I mean, that was my thesis. And and I'm not I'm not talking about slacking off. I'm not talking about like napping all day or, you know, I did a story a couple of weeks back about, you know, having two jobs and kind of gaming the system. I'm, I'm really just talking about having some emotional distance from your job, being able to say no to little things that don't matter, figuring out what actually matters and what doesn't. 
And what one expert told me, she was like, if you're having to ask yourself this question, like if, if you're kind of like inherently like an overachiever and a little too obsessed with work, she was like, you could probably take it down like 25% and you'd <laughs> still be doing a good job. And that really resonated with me. And that's so hard for a lot of people, right? We uh, tend to let our jobs become our identities in many parts of it. And it's just really hard to detach. You know, how many times do you hear learn to love what you do or, you know, the grind never stops, you know, all these things that, you know, just kind of more firmly put you into that mode of, uh, of thinking you can never really stop doing that stuff. And a lot of times to gain some of this perspective, sometimes something major has to happen. You opened your story with a man who was 45 years old, pretty young. He had a heart attack and that was the catalyst for him to really say, okay, I need to change things. His story was so moving to me. I, I had seen a LinkedIn post that he wrote months ago and immediately thought of him for this piece. He sat down to get started on work, you know, on a Sunday for the prep for the work week and he had a heart attack. And like one of his first thoughts was like, you know, it was an expletive. I don't know if I can sit on your radio program. I couldn't say it in the Wall Street Journal, but right. he was like, I got to meet with my manager tomorrow. Like this isn't convenient. And he survived and kind of changed his life and changed his perspective. He talked a bunch about what you were talking about, too, this sense that, like, your work becomes your job. You're supposed to find purpose and meaning in your work, you know? Like, that's the thing. And hustle culture, you're supposed to always be improving yourself. Um, and not that those things aren't kind of valuable goals, but I think, like, we've taken it too far a little bit. So what do we do then? You know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, it's easy to just say change the life, uh, you know, focus less on the unimportant things. Everybody says that's so easy to do, but, but how do we get there? What do we, how should we get that perspective then? Yeah. One expert told me just like, think to yourself, like, is this thing really part of my job? Like, do I really have to do it? Like what would happen if I didn't have to, if I didn't do it? And some things like definitely are part of your job and you will not get a paycheck if you don't do them. And it varies from person to person, but you know, kind of like she likened her book is kind of likened to the Marie Kondo thing of like, you know, does it spark joy? You know, if not, let it go. And her thing is like, if it's not really important, let it go. And probably your manager will tell you if you like pull back on something that is important. But in, in many cases, we don't even know, we can't even figure out what's important. So everything becomes a fire drill. And then we're kind of just worse at a lot of parts of our jobs. What should employers be doing? Because sometimes they're jerks and they're not going to care. But there's a lot of employers that do wish to help their employees strike that work-life balance. What should they be doing on their part? You know, companies have done things like give people like bonus days off or bonus weeks off, or they've had listening sessions about burnout or meeting free days. It's all well-intentioned and, and a good start. But what folks told me was it has to go beyond that. So if you're giving me a week off, you have to like loosen my deadlines and decrease expectations. If people are leaving, you know, the company because we're seeing so many resignations, you need to add more resources to my project in some way, whether that's by bringing on other team members or adding, you know, more automation or technology that could help. Like you have to really reduce the work in order to put some of these other benefits in. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Divers is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 